Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. So hello, my name is Arina and I'm a neurology trainee working at the Walton Center. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of our NeuroPodCases. Uh, today we'll be talking about localization, which is actually a topic that is uh, often dreaded, but very, very important for all medical students. So today's podcast will be sort of pitched at the medical student level, but uh, neurology trainees might also find it helpful. And uh, today I am joined uh, by Dr. John Williamson, who normally actually interviews for our, for our series, but today he will be the person giving his expertise. Hello. Hi, Irina. Thanks very much. And uh, yeah, it's nice to be uh, on the, the receiving end of the questions today. So let's start with the sort of basic question, uh, just thinking what uh, do we actually mean when we say localization and why do we care about it so much in neurology? Okay, so yeah, good place to start. So uh, when we think about localization, it's important to put it into context of when, when we're seeing a patient who has a neurological problem, um, our first thought is obviously whether the symptoms the patient has relate to you know, disruption of the nervous system. And then we have to think whether or not this is something that has caused disruption to how the nervous system is structured versus how the nervous system is functioning. And then if, if we think the person's symptoms could relate to structural damage to the nervous system, the next question we've got is where in the nervous system the problem might be. And there's obviously, well, that can be quite a, a lot of answers to that question. But generally we think, could this be a focal neurological problem? So a, a problem with just one part of the nervous system, or could it be a problem that's multifocal spread across many parts, or could it be a diffuse problem affecting the whole of the, the nervous system or, or a whole region of the nervous system? That's what, what it is. It's working out where in the nervous system the problem is. Uh, and it usually comes uh, as a combination of both the history and the examination. And I guess today's podcast will be talking about how the examination can really help you localize. That's absolutely correct. Um, I guess sort of, you know, I would agree with you, but I do have a little bit of a question to challenge because I guess in the sort of, you know, previous day and time, we could say uh, that's really important because you know exactly where the problem is. But surely these days we can scan people uh, and uh, that sort of would help us very much and narrow our differential, isn't it? Yeah, well, well I'll, I'll, um, I'll take that as a deliberately provocative question. <laughs> it is, yes. Yeah, okay, so, um, yeah, I think, obviously, you know, in uh, we obviously do a lot of scanning, and, you know, I guess MRI would be a very common investigation, whether it's of the brain, the spinal cord. Um, to take the question uh, very seriously there, we have to think, well, how do you know which part of the nervous system to scan? And, you know, you don't just do whole body MRI on someone just because they have a, nerve, uh, um, a problem of the nervous system. And, um, you know, sometimes we deal with conditions where perhaps the scan doesn't give us the answer. So, uh, you know, it's, it's all very well thinking, oh, we'll scan the brain. But if you've actually localized the problem to being in the nerves or the muscles, then obviously a brain scan isn't going to give you the answer. So it's, it's about working out which bit to scan and, and also really thinking whether a scan is appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually another way to, to think of it as well, which is that very often patients will get scans done for, for other reasons. And the question will be, well, could this be explaining the symptoms? And I think working backwards, you have to be able to work out how to localize to work out whether or not 
a scan finding could be relevant. So mm. lots of reasons to learn it. So it actually hugely affects the practice, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's something that all neurologists would be uh, would say is quite an essential part of the job, yeah. Well, so I think my duty is to say I've been persuaded as a neurology trainee. Uh, so then let's start with the localization. And uh, perhaps the first question I could ask you is uh, sort of what is the basic anatomy that one needs to keep in mind uh, in deciding sort of where the lesion is? Okay, so... Yeah, it's difficult to know where to start, I guess, but probably a sensible um, place to start is with the motor system. So if a patient has weakness, now you'll have taken a full history and from the history you can work out the potential options of where that could be. Um, but if we just go a brief recap of our neuroanatomy, we can start to think a bit more systematically about that. Okay, so if we think of our motor pathways, so it's very simple um, in terms of the uh, upper motor and lower motor neuron pathway that we have to think about. So let's start with the upper motor neuron pathway, which starts in the cortex, uh, where the, the cell body resides. And the, we've got to remember that the motor system is arranged in a very particular way in the cortex. Uh, and I'm sure we all remember the pictures of the homunculus, uh, where you have um, the, the face and the hand very close together, and then the arm, and then, um, and then the legs at a, at a more medial part of the, uh, the cortex. So you've got the, the homunculus there, which is the cortical representation of the motor system. And then that motor neuron will go on a journey through the subcortical white matter. And the, that will take it uh, through to the brainstem, which is another important landmark. And at the brainstem, something very important happens, which is the motor fibers cross over. So that happens in the lower part of the brainstem called the medulla. And then from the medulla, we be it becomes the spinal cord. And in the spinal cord, the motor pathways travel in the lateral corticospinal tracts. And that's a single neuron. So that's all the way from the cortex to the lateral corticospinal tracts is a single neuron. And then that neuron will eventually terminate or synapse in the anterior horn, uh, ventral horn of the spinal cord. Okay. That's one long You're journey, with... isn't it, for yeah, one yeah. cell? So that, yeah, that's all, that, that's, that's one neuron. And if you damage that neuron anywhere along that pathway, it will give you similar clinical signs. So the way that you help to localize where on that pathway it mm. might be damaged is by looking at the other accompanying signs that come with it. But we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. So it synapses in on the anterior horn cell and then it, it forms, then it becomes the lower motor neuron. So this is the second neuron in that pathway. And the lower motor neuron then ent exits the spinal cord via the ventral root, nerve root, and, and becomes a, uh, a mixed motor and sensory nerve. So it becomes a mixed motor and sensory nerve root. The nerve roots will combine to become, in the upper limbs will become the brachial plexus, and then the, the brachial plexus will divide out and become individual nerves. And then it's not quite over yet, so when it gets to the nerve, it then will terminate as a nerve, but you have the neuromuscular junction, and then you have the muscle. And, and or anywhere disruption along any of this pathway, either the upper motor neuron, the lower motor neuron, the neuromuscular junction, or the muscle could potentially present with weakness, okay? Mm. So that's the sort of uh, whole motor nervous system in a nutshell, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I think what's really important to remember is that patients might present with symptoms that are, that are weakness or similar to weakness that are due to problems of how this motor system is controlled. So these can be extra pyramidal problems. I guess the most typical one would be Parkinson's disease, mm -hmm. uh, but you, you can have problems of too little movement like Parkinson's or too much movement like a career. Mm. Um, but the, I guess the fundamental unit of movement is this upper motor neuron, lower motor neuron 
um, uh, connection, yeah. And then obviously it's also under influence from other things such as the cerebellum, which could present with, with weakness or something that looks like weakness uh, and even, uh, you know, other more higher cortical functions that could cause an apraxia. But for the purposes of localization today, we'll just focus on this upper motor neuron, lower motor neuron pathway. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So I guess the first question is there, and um, if there is a weakness in our patient, is it then a lower motor neuron or upper motor neuron uh, sort of type of weakness? So the question is sort of uh, what uh, type of examination findings you would expect and whether it is actually easy to tell in practice whether it is upper or lower motor neuron. Um, Yeah, so very good question. So let's deal with the damage to the upper motor neuron first. So when patients have damage to the upper motor neuron, the the muscles that are affected will will have a very characteristic clinical findings. So we tend to see increase in tone, which is a very specific sort of increase in tone, which we call spasticity. Okay, the reflexes when you test the reflexes in upper motor neuron damage, reflexes tend to be brisk, and in particular, uh, there's one reflex that's very important called the Babinski response or the the plantar response, and that tends to be upgoing or extensor uh, when there's been damage to the upper motor neurons, and then. If you damage the upper motor neurons, there tends to be a very distinct pattern of weakness as well. So you may hear people talk about a pyramidal pattern of weakness. So this is a very distinct pattern that's different in the upper and lower limbs. So in the upper limbs, a pyramidal pattern of weakness means that the flexors are strong, but the extensors are weak. And in the lower limbs, it means the opposite. It means that the extensors are strong, but the flexors are weak. And if you see, if you see a patient that has that combination of signs, so brisk reflexes, strong flexion in the upper limbs, Uh, with um, weaker extension in the upper limbs and strong extension in the lower limbs with weaker flexion and an upgoing plantar, well then you've pretty much got all of the the, the signs there to suggest that this is a person who's got an upper motor neuron problem and then your, your only question then to ask is where in the pathway the problem might be. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of thinking in my head about stroke patients with yeah. sort of this very typical pattern of a sort of, you know, curled up um, arm, isn't it? Exactly, um, yeah. Which, and, and as we know, stroke is a disease that affects the central nervous system. Um, and therefore, it's no surprise that the examination findings that you get there are upper motor neuron findings. Mm. If you've damaged your lower motor neurons, you tend to get, sorry, you get absent reflexes. You have flaccid tone uh, and you would expect the weakness to not follow that pyramidal pattern you wouldn't expect the plantar response to be upgoing. Mm. But it, you, you asked whether it's always easy to make that distinction in, in clinical practice. And the, the honest answer is, you know, I, I wish it was always that easy. But, you know, <laughs> the, these things are, are can be a bit tricky. And, you know, patients don't tend to read the textbooks before they come in. So I think what you have to do is uh, have a very meticulous approach to examination, examine lots of patients, and hopefully you pick up the signs. But you can be caught out. I think the classic uh, thing that we're always taught and we always teach students is someone presenting with a, a fairly acute um, spinal cord syndrome. They could present with, say, flaccid weakness in the lower limbs as a very acute uh, during the very acute stage. So it does take time for those upper motor neuron signs to uh, to evolve and develop mm-hmm, absolutely i remember sort of finding it quite tricky to understand how sort of for example stroke patients can look as if they had a lot of lower motor neural lesion yeah. whereas in fact the lesion is in the brain i think yeah that's really important and we did discuss in another podcast actually with my uh, colleague dr regan cooley about how to assess a stroke patient 
And I think stroke is one of those examples where you, it's, it's all very acute and it's all very quick, especially because you, if you want to give treatment and you're not looking for these signs, you're not looking for brisk reflexes, pyramidal pattern weakness in a stroke patient because it's happening then and there in front of you, you're not going to find mm-hmm. them. So in that, in that situation, you're just looking is their weakness and trying to localize based on the pattern of weakness that you're seeing. Mm, of course. Uh, for today, I think we'll uh, stick to the basics though, hasn't it? So I think that's that's quite a good framework to start with. So you have the sort of upper motor neuron signs, uh, which uh, would be spastic weakness uh, and uh, increased reflexes with upgoing planters. And that will bring you sp- sort of straight onto the central nervous system. Um, and then uh, sort of, you know, for lower motor neuron, you would have uh, this flaccid weakness with absent or reduced reflexes. So we sort of roughly know where we are, mm-hmm. uh, but how do we go further from there? And uh, sort of what are the patterns of weakness you might see uh, with the damage to upper motor neuron at various levels? So for example, the brain hemispheres, the brainstem uh, or the spinal cord. Okay. Yeah. So I think this is where it's really important to look for patterns of weakness. And um, obviously you're going to, as part of your examination, you're trying to think, is this upper motor neuron versus lower motor neuron? But the distribution of where the weakness is can also be a really big clue. So let's start at the, in the brain. So we know because of how we're wired that the, the right hemisphere, that those motor fibers are destined to innovate the, uh, the left side of the body. That, that's just how, how things work, right? So if you have a problem that's affecting the one side of the body, be it leg, face or arm, um, that's your first clue that this may be a hemispheric problem. Um, rather than maybe a spinal cord problem. And then within the cerebral hemisphere itself, we've got the various levels there. So in the cortex, if you have a a problem affecting the motor neuron near the cortex, you might expect to see other cortical signs there. So let's take a condition like stroke. So if you've you've caused weakness by damaging the upper motor neuron at the level of the cortex, um, then what you would also expect to see is perhaps if that weakness is down the right side of the body, you would expect to see maybe problems with language because we know the left hemisphere, the areas that control uh, our motor control of our our face and our arm are very close to Broca's area, which is obviously important for the output of language. So that can be a clue to helping localize to not only the cerebral hemisphere, but particularly a a cortical uh, problem within the cerebral hemisphere. If you go down a bit further from the cortex, the fibers are running in the subcortical area, which is the the white matter tracts. Now, if you damaged a uh, the, if you damage the upper motor neuron in the I don't know the left hemisphere subcortical white matter, you would expect the weakness to be down the right side of the body again because we're we're in the hemisphere, but you wouldn't expect there to be those other cortical mm. signs. Okay, that so makes ho- sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So you have uh, the sort of unwanted bonuses with the cortical sciences, yeah, that, uh, and the extra sort of deficits. Yeah, and certainly I guess the stroke syndrome that we know that most likely this is a pure motor lacuna stroke syndrome where you can have weakness affecting the face, arm and the leg down the one side of the body, uh, but you don't get problems with speech. Uh, you mm-hmm. don't have problems of um, a hemianopia. Mm-hmm. And that's because the, the damage is being done at a site distant from where those other cortical areas are. Mm-hmm. Um, the important thing to think about with the, the subcortical areas as well are in the homunculus, these neurons are spread over a lot, quite a large surface area. But as they travel through the brain, they all come together to be very close. So you can have a, a very small lesion or very small mm-hmm. area of damage in, a, say, the internal capsule. And that could give you very severe weakness down the whole side of the body. 
Um, and that's also important to, to, to remember as well. Mm, yeah, very okay. special area, isn't it? Internal yeah. capsule, absolutely. Then we, then we get to the, to the brainstem. Mm. So in the brainstem, the, the motor fibers, so through the midbrain and the pons, the motor fibers will be traveling down mm-hmm. and they will uh, be on the same side as they were in the hemisphere. Okay, so damage to those structures, again, will give you the opposite side weakness. But the important thing about the brainstem is that there's lots of cranial nerve nuclei there as well. And the cranial nerve nuclei, they're exiting at the level of the brainstem. So if when you're examining someone, you can see that they've got weakness down maybe one arm and leg, but they've got cranial nerve signs on the opposite side to the weakness, then that's a really strong localizing sign for that the problem might be in the brainstem. Mm, okay. Absolutely. Have, have you heard of the rule of four of the brainstem? I think I did. Yes. Yeah. So four at the top, four in the middle, four at the bottom, yeah. roughly, isn't it? So that that's a, that's kind of a good way to think about where in the brainstem you might have the problem. So mm. if you've you said four at the top, so if you've got a third nerve palsy affecting the left eye, and you've got weakness in the arm or leg uh, on the right side then you can say, well, that's the left side of the midbrain. Mm, Makes sense? Absolutely, yeah, because cranial nerves will always be sort of affected on the same side. Whereas for the rest of the body, we are talking about the decusating pathways, isn't it? And then not quite finished yet with this upper motor neuron. So you've still got a little bit to do, which is the spinal cord. Of course. So we're saying we've crossed over at the bottom of the medulla Mm -hmm. and we're traveling in the lateral corticospinal tracts. Now... The, and and the, the upper motor neuron will then travel down until the level at which it synapses in the anterior horn cell, as we've said. One of the clues often to a spinal cord pathology, though, is that it, they can often be quite symmetrical. And this is because the cross-sectional area of the spinal cord is actually quite tiny compared to the brainstem and the brain. And so any disease process, be it a stroke, inflammation, a tumour, is likely to affect, to some degree, it might be asymmetric, but it's likely to affect both sides of the spinal cord. So if you see someone who's got weakness, both arms, both legs, uh, you know, you have to think to yourself, could that be a spinal cord problem? Mm. Uh, It's not over at that point. You've still got a bit of work to do, but that's (laughs) just the, the starting point. Of course. So sort of putting it all together, uh, if I am in the sort of hemisphere and the cerebral cortex, I would expect sort of other cortical signs. Then going a little bit deeper, it would be probably more of a sort of pure motor um, sort of um, symptoms and signs. Uh, brainstem would give me the cranial nerve signs and symptoms. And then if I am, if I am in the spinal cord, then weakness is more likely to be bilateral, yeah. although um, might be asymmetrical. Is yeah. that sort of where we are for the yeah, upper think, motor neuron? As, as a general rule, that's really good. And mm-hmm. then I guess the, the important thing is to never be uh, you know to keep an open mind and, and always be trying to think logically about it but it's a really good starting point yeah of course sure uh, so sort of um, then uh, thinking of the um, uh, sensory examination, because most patients, of course, will present with both motor and sensory findings. How does that help us uh, to sort of ascertain um, where we are? And I guess we'll probably need to revisit the pathways as well. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. So the, so the yeah. So so far, we've only talked about the motor pathways, mm-hmm. but you're right that there are these sensory pathways as well. Uh, and that can help us with the, the task of localizing. So we usually do the sensory exam towards the end of the motor exam. So you've already got a bit of a hypothesis as to what you think the problem might be. And I guess the way I, I would tend to use the sensory exam is you have to then test that hypothesis with the sensory exam to think, right, is there sensory involvement at all? Because sometimes we can help localize by there not being sensory involvement. And if there is sensory involvement, what's the pattern of that involvement? So let's do um, so a brief recap. So now the nerves are traveling in the opposite direction. So they're traveling from the periphery into the spinal cord and then up into the brain. Okay, so 
let's start with the uh, out in the out in the periphery. So we obviously have our sensory nerve endings, and these then travel in uh, often mixed motor and sensory nerves. They travel um, through the brachial plexus, and then they'll enter the spinal cord at the through the dorsal uh, dorsal roots. Mm-hmm. Then this is where it then gets uh, slightly interesting because there's two routes then from going into the spinal cord up into the brain. And I think the students kind of know this, but if you, it's worth recapping it and having a picture as you think of this. So you've got what we call, let's deal with the dorsal columns first. So mm-hmm. these, are the, 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 these are the sensory fibers that convey vibration and joint position sense. When they enter the spinal cord, they, will, uh, they don't synapse immediately, but they will travel up the same side of the spinal cord as to what they've entered until they get to the the very top of the spinal cord just on the junction with the medulla where they will then synapse okay uh, and then once they are in the once they synapse they then go into a bundle of nerve fibers which are called, is called the medial lemniscus and the medial lemniscus goes to the thalamus but it crosses over to the opposite thalamus okay so if it's been in the right dorsal column those fibers will go into the left thalamus, okay? Mm-hmm. And then from the thalamus, there are then projections up to the cortex. So it's a three-order neuron pathway. Correct. Okay, yep. okay. The spinothalamic tract is a bit different. <laughs> so the spinothalamic tract will enter through the dorsal, um, the dorsal nerve root, uh, and it will synapse in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord gray matter. It will then cross over at that level so at that level or a few levels above to the opposite side and it will travel up in the anterior lateral or the spinothalamic tracts all the way to the thalamus okay so that's the pathways so the so how does the sensory exam help inform our localization well if you've got a problem that's affecting your spinal cord you would be looking to see have you is it also affecting the joint position vibration and pain or temperature sensation if it's affecting all of them then you would think to yourself well that's likely to be a, an entire cord problem like a transverse myelitis mm-hmm. if it's affecting some or not other that would help you localize which side of the cord it's on in the brain stem um, so it's the the whether or not pain and temperature can help you to decide does this localize to the medial aspects of the brainstem where the medial lemniscus travels or is it in the more lateral aspects of the brainstem where the spinothalamic tract travels so that can be a helpful localization uh, along with the motor system findings and the cranial nerve findings and then at the level of the cortex um, obviously if you have a very large stroke that's affecting uh, the motor cortex well we know the sensory cortex is just behind that so you might you might there see a similar pattern of uh, motor and sensory lot uh, mo- you might see a similar pattern of sensory symptoms that's uh, where you have the weakness mm. okay so confusing Perfect. but uh, hopefully I th- no I think I'm still following yes Good. that definitely uh, so um, just sort of uh, moving then from the central nervous system to the peripheral nervous system uh, we talked about the sort of motor signs that uh, one would expect so signs of lower motor neuron lesion uh, and then uh, again thinking of the sort of uh, sensory examination findings and how they would come into play yeah uh, and you mentioned already a sort of you know sometimes the absence or presence yeah. of sensory signs is a helpful localizing sign as well isn't it yeah so so when we, we we'll talk about the the lower motor neuron now so we're talking all the way here from the anterior horn cell through the the ventral 
so through the ventral route out of the spinal cord and into a mixed motor sensory um, into a mixed motor sensory nerve route so nerves from different nerve routes will combine to form either the brachial plexus or the lumbar sacral plexus to the lower limbs and from there will emerge individual nerve and then we talk about the neuromuscular junction and then the the muscle so then with damage to the lower motor neuron we know what characteristic findings we would expect so how do we localize it a bit further down than just uh, just saying just well, like as a periphery yeah mm. so i think it's really important here to think about the concept of what a myotome is so if a lot of people know what a dermatome is a dermatome mm. is an area of skin supplied by a certain sensory uh, by a a sensory nerve root mm. and so a myotome is similar but with muscles so take for instance the t1 nerve root there will be ner motor nerve fibers within the t1 nerve root that are destined to become that are destined to innovate uh, the first dorsal interosseous muscle so muscles that would control finger abduction mm. uh, and some of them will also even go on to innovate abductor pollicis brevis so an, an, uh, the uh, a muscle of the thumb mm. So if you damaged at the level of the T1 nerve root, you might have weakness of both first dorsal interosseus and also abductor pollicis brevis, mm. right? But actually each of those two muscles are actually innervated by a different nerve. So the first dorsal interosseus is the ulnar nerve mm. and the abductor pollicis brevis is the median nerve. So you've got this discrepancy there that if, if you've got both of them affected, well, it's either both an ulnar and a median neuropathy or it could be a problem higher up at the at the level of the nerve root. And that's kind of how you work out localization of the lower motor neuron. Mm -hmm. You have to look at what muscles are affected and then think back and think, right, so what nerve does that? What branch of the brachial plexus is that? So which part of the brachial plexus does that come from? Which nerve root does that come from? And it's kind of like, you know, uh, sorting it out. It's like, well, if it's this and this, then it has to be this. It's kind of a logical mm -hmm. deduction from there. It's a lot of pattern recognition, isn't it? And sort yeah. of experience. And I, I guess probably many students might find it scary to sort of memorize exactly, you know, which yeah. nerve root, which nerve. What are your tips for sort of committing such things to memory? So I think the, um, I think that what I would say is that when you examine, obviously when you learn the neurological examination, it, you're, you start learning it just as a process of, right, you need to get through it and learn, learn how to pick stuff up. But I think it's really important when you are testing, every time you test a muscle, just to think to yourself, okay what what nerve is this that i'm testing uh, and that that's one way to start the other is that there's lots of really good textbooks and one that a lot of neurology trainees will use is called aids to examination of the peripheral nervous system it's a really good textbook it's it's in there and i think that's a really good good resource mm. for students uh, to use um, and then the sensory exam i guess it works in a similar way so it kind of augments what you found on the on the motor exam so with uh, if you've got problems with the nerve roots, as I said before, those are mixed motor and sensory nerves. So you'd expect to see dermatomal uh, patterns of sensory loss. That's and I think everyone knows on YouTube there's a dance that you can do to learn the dermatomes. I've never learned that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but well, uh, it, yeah. It, it's out there. Something to go to. <laughs> and um, so you'd expect dermatomal um, symptoms, and probably in the history you'd expect there to be maybe pain as well, because irritating a nerve root or damage to the nerve root would cause a lot of symptoms. And then likewise, if you if you have uh, a mixed motor and sensory nerve affected, so the ulnar nerve, then you would expect there to be sensory loss in the distribution of the ulnar nerve. So this sensory exam can be useful. And then if there's no sensory involvement, well then you might start to think about more things like could this be a problem of the anterior horn cell? So that lower motor neuron 
before it joins with the uh, the before it mixes with the the sensory nerves to form a mixed nerve root. Absolutely, and apart from that, we'll also have certain uh, muscle and neuromuscular junction diseases. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. and that also leave us with uh, no sensory symptoms or signs. Re- yeah, really, really important. So if you if it's a muscle problem, you're not going to have sensory symptoms. Sorry, sensory signs, and if it's neuromuscular junction, you're not going to have sensory signs and signs. And usually. You know those, those sorts of things as well. Most muscle problems, not not all, but most muscle problems, you'd expect to be quite symmetrical. Usually, they affect proximal more than distal. Although there are uh, some quite important exceptions to that. And neuromuscular junction disorders, well, usually the hallmark of those is fatigability. Uh, that that means that as you exercise as you exercise the muscle, it tends to get weaker. There there are some that can get stronger as you exercise, but that kind of that the fact that exercise changes the strength. That's a good localizing uh, sign. To Feature, yes, attention. absolutely. Okie dokie. Um, so I think uh, that sort of uh, covers the very, very basics of uh, sort of localization, isn't it? Um, just sort of pulling it all together. We are starting with the uh, motor and nervous system and looking at the sort of upper and lower motor uh, pattern of the lesion. Yeah. Once we roughly know if we are central or peripheral, um, then we can sort of use the extra features. So for example, looking at the cranial nerves, uh, thinking if the damage is symmetrical for the uh, spinal cord, uh, thinking whether we are just affected on one side of the body as we would do with sort of most uh, cerebral hemisphere lesions. Uh, and after that, we can, uh, as you say, you know, verify our hypothesis with sensory examination and say, is this fitting? Yeah. Uh, and potentially use a couple of textbooks uh, for those uh, sort of nitty gritty details yeah. of nerve roots and, and nerves. And, and obviously all of what we've said so far occurs in the context of also having done a thorough neurological history as well. Unless it's a a medical examination, it's very rare that you would just walk up to someone and start examining them. So you get most of your information about the hypothesis of what might be wrong from the history, and then the examination kind of fits in after that to try and narrow it down Mm -hmm. further. So it's a sort of multi-level approach, really. Absolutely. Uh, great. Uh, so I think there are just a couple of special situations uh, and uh, maybe confusing scenarios that certainly I found slightly more confusing uh, yeah. as a sort of medical student. Um, because we've built our system sort of based on those um, upper and lower motor neuron findings, um, would you be able to tell me if there are any situations where I might find both of them actually? Yeah, okay. So probably a bit of a leading question because yes. yeah, there, <laughs> there, there are obviously situations where you can, you can get both. So um Obviously, you know, first thing to say is, you know, patients might have two pathologies. So that that's always a possibility. So someone may have had a stroke who also happens to have, uh, I don't know, diabetes, and they've got a, a peripheral neuropathy with the diabetes, giving them reduced ankle jerk response. And they, they've had a stroke, which means they've got some spasticity also on that side. So that's, but then I guess a couple of things to really think about um, with what you're saying is, if you say you had a spinal cord problem at the level of I don't know, the um, C5-6 of the spinal cord. So let's say, uh, for instance, there's a, a disc that, which is very common uh, pathology there, that's pressing or irritating the nerve root as it leaves the, uh, leaves the spinal cord. So at the level of where you've got, oh, sorry, so let's say there's a disc that is both impinging on the spinal cord itself, causing a myelopathy, so impressing down on the spinal cord damaging the upper motor neuron pathways that are traveling down the spinal cord in the corticospinal tracts. But the same disc is also causing pressure on the exiting nerve root at that level, so C5-6. So what you might see here is that the level of C5-6 
which as we know is the, is the level that controls uh, muscles such as uh, our biceps muscle uh, and is would be expected to be uh, is important in the biceps uh, reflex arc you might see lower motor neuron signs because you're damaging the lower motor neuron there mm -hmm. but below that level because we've got the pressure on the spinal cord you would see upper motor neuron signs below the level and we know that the triceps reflex for instance is at the level of C7-8. So mm -hmm. in that scenario, you might have a brisk triceps reflex, mm -hmm. but a reduced biceps reflex. And that might seem a little bit confusing, but I guess that's actually, that would be a very good way of thinking that this is actually localizing to mm -hmm. the spinal cord. And you can even be a bit more specific. There are very few places that would give you a sort of uh, this pattern of reflexes, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I think reflexes are really useful to know about your reflex levels in general, because it can help localize within the spinal cord. You know, spinal cord is a long, is, is a long structure uh, and uh, there's a lot of areas it could be damaged in. Obviously, I, you know, it should be obvious that if the problem affecting the spinal cord is occurring in the thoracic spine, you would not expect any motor problems in the arms because all of the arms certainly below the level of T1, all of the nerves that are destined to become motor nerves to the arms will have left. Mm. So if you have a situation where there's weakness in both legs, but there's no weakness in the arms and reflexes and examination are normal in the upper limbs, that would tell you that this probably is a, you know, this is probably in the thoracic spine or, or lower. And likewise, if the problem is affecting both arms and legs and you've got upper motor neuron signs in the arms and legs, and, uh, you know, in particular, I guess if you've got a sensory loss, that's the other, yeah, sorry, a sensory level, that's the other thing, then this would tell you that that is a cervical problem. It wouldn't it make sense for that to be a thoracic level problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and um, is there any other uh, sort of condition um, that you could think of uh, giving oh. upper and motor neuron uh, signs yeah. that I think would be worth to mention here? Yeah, uh, so the other, the other condition, of course, is, is motor neuron disease. And uh, this is a neurodegenerative disorder affecting both the upper motor neuron and the lower motor neurons and depending on how you know which is affected and, and where it's affected you can get a combination of both upper and lower motor neuron signs and I guess the um, the classic thing that you might see there is a muscle that is weak and wasted which is a very lower motor neuron sign um, but there is also a brisk reflex present there and that kind of tells you that there may be uh, a condition like motor neuron disease there. Mm. Importantly, the sensory exam there, you'd expect to be completely normal because that's only a condition that would affect motor nerves. Absolutely. Uh, great. Uh, so I think that's uh, sort of uh, one of the tricky situations uh, that I wanted to discuss. And then I think the other one that is uh, perhaps most hated by medical students is so-called the brown sequard syndrome, which is the sort of spinal hemicord lesion. Um, would you be just sort of able to, um, you know, pull together all we've discussed and, and say, you know, what sort of signs and symptoms would you get? And I think that would be probably a good way of summarizing yeah, yeah. all that we covered so far. Yeah, good. So um, we kind of alluded to this earlier, but let's let's deal with it now. So, if you uh, if you have a problem affecting just one half of your spinal cord, um, thinking about what goes what you'd expect to see on examination is a good way to think about those pathways in general. So, obviously, let, let's take for instance we have uh, damaged the right side of our spinal cord. So, 
we'll say this has been damaged at the level of the cervical spine for, for simplicity. So what will you expect to find from a motor pathway? Well, we know that the upper motor neurons that run in that part of the spinal cord have, have uh, already crossed over. So the, uh, we would expect the weakness to be down the same side as the pathology. So we'd expect right-sided arm and leg weakness. Agreed? Agreed. Yeah. And I can also add that would be an upper motor neuron sort of weakness. And it would be an upper motor neuron weakness. Pattern, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then what would we expect for the, sens uh, for the sensory exam? So this is where uh, it's really important to remember where the spinothalamic and where the dorsal columns cross over. So the dorsal columns, if you remember, they travel up on the same side as they enter until they get to the very top of the cervical spine at the base of the medulla and they, then before they synapse and cross over. So if you damage the right side of the spinal cord, you would expect the loss of vibration sense and joint position sense to also be on the right side. So the same as the upper motor neuron findings. And I guess the opposite is then true for the spinothalamic tracts. So we would expect, because these have entered and have crossed very early after entering, that actually the, the spinothalamic tracts running up the cord will be conveying sensation from the opposite side of the body. And that kind of dissociated sensory loss is very localizing to the to a, a right hemicord syndrome. I think the important thing to state is that doesn't tell you what the cause of the person's problem is. You know, that's where you need to do a history and maybe do adjunctive tests, but that would localize very strongly to the spinal cord. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, have you ever seen that in practice and what was the etiology, just of curiosity, because it's quite so, a rare syndrome, yeah. isn't so, it? So you, in, in, in practice, what you tend to see is uh, patients who have kind of like a partial brown saccade. So there might be some elements of it where uh, there is this dissociation of joint position sense and um, and pinprick. So, and the conditions tend to be with that would be uh, more of the neuroinflammatory, such as MS, like an MS plaque on just one side of the cord could do that. Sure. Yeah. So I think we've covered sort of the basics. We've discussed yeah. um, the sort of more complex scenario. We've discussed where we would see the sort of uh, combined upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron signs, uh, discussed the sort of sensory patterns for the peripheral nerve examination and also for the uh, central nervous system uh, examination. Um, and we also touched upon the brainstem uh, and uh, we talked about uh, sort of localization using the um, uh, cranial and nerves nuclei. Uh, is there anything else you would like to add on or any sort of tips for our students uh, on no, how to so master? I think, I, yeah, I hope I hope we've not lost too many at this stage. And <laughs> I think the um, I think the key is that everything we've talked about here is not in isolation. So this is all comes from taking a history, forming a hypothesis about what you think might be wrong and then using the examination as a means to test that hypothesis. Um, I hope that what patient, what you know, what students listening would now appreciate is that there's a large element to this, which is pattern recognition. Um, but even if it's not pattern recognition, having a systematic approach to it and thinking quite logically can get you quite far. And and what I really would hope is that actually they've seen that this is uh, one of the reasons why neurology is is an interesting subject, and and why it combines that what's really important about being a doctor, which is 
taking history, examining, and really working at the bedside and using the bedside as your as your laboratory to try and work mm. out what's going on. And I guess being logical and sort of systematic, methodological is what we like to think of ourselves as neurologists, I guess, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's how we like. Yeah, yeah and we, localization we like is that. what we sort of consider to be a, the great example of that. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, and, and sometimes, obviously, I, I said it at the, point, at the start, and I think it's worth stressing is, you know, sometimes after the history, your hypothesis will be that I, I don't think this patient has a structural problem with the nervous system. I don't think they've and therefore you would use the examination to test that you would expect it to be normal and um you know you don't it's not that every neurological examination you do you will be finding pathology it's just when you do find pathology trying to work out where in the nervous system it is that that's the important thing um so brilliant thank you very much i think that completes uh, me grilling you on the other (laughs) side on the macro microphone (laughs) thank you for listening For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.